Welcome to the Tiger's History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. If you were Jewish in Detroit in the 1930s, you faced menacing forces far away and right at home. As the decade wore on, the news from Europe grew increasingly frightening. Jews there faced discrimination, persecution, and imprisonment as Hitler increased his power and no one seemed to stop him. For many Jews in America, this directly affected their families, their hometowns, their people as a whole. Closer to home, the city of Detroit was home to two of the nation's most vocal anti-Semites, Henry Ford, the entrepreneur whose anti-Semitic pamphlets were read and praised by Adolf Hitler himself, and Father Charles Coughlin, who was spewing anti-Semitic venom on his national talk radio show. It was against this backdrop that a Jewish sports superstar who played for the Detroit Tigers took baseball by storm. Hank Greenberg led the Tigers to multiple World Series, dazzling fans at Michigan and Trumbull with his towering home runs. He even reached for Babe Ruth's seemingly untouchable record of 60 home runs in a season. The year 1938 provided this incredible convergence. Just as the Nazis were unleashing their fiercest aggression yet, Hank Greenberg made a season-long chase for the immortal mark of 60 home runs. He came incredibly close, finishing with 58. No one would top that until Roger Maris in 1961. Ron Kaplan's new book, Hank Greenberg in 1938, Hatred and Home Runs in the Shadow of War, tells this sometimes surreal story. Kaplan is also author of 501 baseball books fans must read before they die, and The Jewish Olympics, The History of the Maccabiah Games. Kaplan is a former sports and features editor for the New Jersey Jewish News. He blogs at Ron Kaplan's Baseball Bookshelf. I talked to him about what Hank Greenberg did in 1938 and the context in which he did it. Ron Kaplan is author of Hank Greenberg in 1938, Hatred and Home Runs in the Shadow of War. Ron, thanks for your time today. Oh, thank you for your interest, Nathan. You write about Hank Greenberg growing up in New York in the Bronx in a tight-knit Jewish community, and it's hard to imagine more culture shock than what he faced joining the Tiger system, uh, minor league stops in Texas, in Raleigh, North Carolina, in Evansville, Indiana, uh, and then ending up in Detroit, which, as you say, was, in your words, I think one of the most anti-Semitic cities of its era, or at least home to several prominent anti-Semitic voices it's hard to imagine more culture shock than what he faced and the self-awareness that that created that, that he was an outsider as a, as a Jewish player. Well, yeah, he uh, realized that you know, in those days, young people didn't really travel far from home. So going down to play in the minor leagues was his first real experience of, of leaving the New York area, where, as you say, it was a tight-knit community and uh, he was surrounded by Blondsman by fellow Jews. So when he does go down uh, south, uh, he encounters people who have never seen a Jew before and who've only heard about Jews. And uh, he really uh, destroyed their their predilections, their, their stereotypes of, of what a Jew was supposed to be. You quote Tiger's catcher Bertie Tebetz as saying, No one faced more hatred and discrimination as a major league ball player except for Jackie Robinson, than Hank Greenberg. You also quote Ben Chapman, who is nobody's reliable source on, on race relations. He's the one who hurled such abuse at Jackie Robinson. But Chapman said, well, we yelled at everybody. Whatever made you different is what we picked on you about. I got picked on as a Southerner, said Chapman. To what extent was what Greenberg faced par for the course when it came to taunts and abuse heaped on other players? And to what extent was it another level up? 
Oh, it was absolutely par for the course. You know, uh, as odious as Chapman was, he, he was right in that, and they picked on anybody for anything. In, in the movie 42, where Alan Tudyk plays uh, plays Chapman and is explaining after the game to reporters that, that they call Joe DiMaggio the WAP when they face the Yankees in exhibition games. They call Greenberg a, a kike. And he says, we, we laugh about it after the games. Well, maybe the ones who do the name-calling laugh about it, but uh, certainly the ones at the receiving end didn't. And for as, as much as a proud Jew as Greenberg was, he was very circumspect about, I, I won't say circumspect about fighting back, but he was very controlled. He was very self-aware. He was very controlled. Uh, he did lose his temper a couple of times, but it's a good thing he was controlled because as big as he was, for that time, he could have done a lot of damage. I want to talk about baseball, but what your book does is intersperse these chilling interludes about the news coming in from Europe in 1938. It's before the war as such really starts, but you have Hitler on the march across Europe, annexing Austria in early 1938, then the Nuremberg Laws, um, and you talk about the appeasement of Hitler uh, with the Munich Agreement, and shortly after the season, Crystal knocked. So these headlines are coming from overseas, and there's the uncertainty of it all. How is it going to end? Where will Jewish refugees find a home? What was it like for Jewish Americans at that time receiving this news and not knowing what was going to happen? Well, it was a very nervous time. Uh, the Jews in America, for the most part, were either recent immigrants themselves or first-generation Americans, and I'm sure the majority of them still had family in Eastern Europe, so there was that that concern about what was going on over there, and as as you mentioned before, there was rampant anti-Semitism in the United States at the time, and uh, they weren't ever certain about where they stood in, in their local communities. For as as wonderful as they thought America was, and how free it was, uh, you you have to sleep with one eye open, so to speak. So. It was, it was a tough time. And as you also mentioned, you know, Detroit was one of the, uh, it was, I believe, the fourth largest metropolitan area at the time, uh, partly due to the automobile industry. So you had a lot of people coming into work there. And uh, you had Henry Ford, who was a notorious anti-Semite, as was Father Charles Coughlin, who was the predecessor of today's conservative talk show radio host. So between the two of them, uh, it was not a very welcoming place for uh, for someone to be Jewish. So you mentioned Henry Ford, and I think you quote him saying he was asked to reconcile, how can you be such a fan of Greenberg? And he was going to the games and cheering Greenberg on. Uh, and he said, well, you know, with no foundation whatsoever, he said, well, Greenberg was only half Jewish. And that seemed like such a lame <laughs> uh, justification that he attempted to make. Uh, it makes me mad in retrospect that he evidently got away with it. Well, people got away with a lot of things in those days. Uh, he was such a, an important and powerful person that you know, if he says something, there, there are very few people who are going to call him out uh, on it. Uh, interesting uh, that Charles Lindbergh, uh, who was the first to fly across the Atlantic solo, was honored by uh, Germany. He received their highest civilian honor uh, given to a foreigner. And, uh, and Ford was also given that same honor, uh, several years later on his 75th birthday in 1938 actually and he, he was called out on it uh, by several uh, prominent Jewish Americans including Eddie Cantor the, uh, who was a very famous uh, entertainer at the time 
and saying that you, you really can't accept this and call yourself a good American considering what's going on in Europe. And Ford responded kind of as, as you said. He said, well, some of my best friends are Jewish and I, this really doesn't mean anything to me. He eventually rescinded the, the honor, but not, not without a lot of blowback. So this was the context for this amazing 1938 season. It wasn't amazing for the Tigers. They had a lousy start and recovered a little toward the finish, but were never in contention. But this was the season that Greenberg made this historic charge at Ruth's record. It's interesting, you say in the preseason that it was a different slugger on the Tigers, Rudy York, who was seen as the one who had the chance to chase Ruth's record. Uh, specifically, they said York will be the one to, to do it. Um, and York is an interesting figure because he ends up replacing Greenberg at first base later, which causes him to move to left. It's such an interesting dynamic between those two, Greenberg and York. Greenberg had to be looking over his shoulder saying there's another f- potential first baseman here and certainly another home run hitter. Well, the problem with York uh, was that he was ostensibly brought up as a catcher, but he wasn't a very good catcher. But because of his bat, uh, Mickey Cochran, the manager who was himself a Hall of Fame catcher, had to put him someplace, and uh, York was a very indifferent fielder. He, he didn't really work on his defense at all. So putting him at first base was probably the uh, best option the Tigers had, and, and credit to Greenberg for making the sacrifice and moving when he was told. He was a good soldier in that respect. But I think he was a pretty confident guy, and he, he knew his place on the team, and I guess he also knew York in a way that we can't know him as a teammate. So uh, he was willing to do what it took, and you know, uh, credit to him for that. But yeah, as you say, uh, York was on the cover of magazines as the next Babe Ruth. So that 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 was funny. That and, and York, as an Indian, all received some of the same uh, platitudes that uh, Greenberg received as a Jew in the in the patois of the sports writing of the day. You know, he was chief this, and they they brought up his Indian heritage for that. So uh, he was another one of the minorities who couldn't escape the uh, well-meaning uh, writing of the sports uh, sports writers, but uh, it, it was nevertheless somewhat insulting. You write that Greenberg was always a slow starter in April, and I think he had three home runs in <laughs> April 1938. And he had 22, I'll look up the number, he had a modest total by the All-Star break, respectable, but nothing that would suggest that he was going to make a run at the record um, how long did it take for perhaps Greenberg himself or at least the media to realize, no, wait a minute, he could reach 60? Well, I, I just want to slightly correct you on that. you got to remember the, the time that he was playing in. Today, hitting 22 or something home runs by the All-Star break doesn't seem like that big a deal when people are regularly hitting in the 40s and 50s. But in those days, by the time the All-Star break came, you know, people were starting to pay attention. And yeah, he did get off to a slow start, and part of that was due to the lousy weather that uh, the Tigers had to play. And they had several games that were rained out that had to be made up as uh, double headers later in the season, which presented its own set of problems uh, in the challenge of, of, uh, of making that uh, record run. And he did endure, even though he picked up the pace, he endured these droughts, particularly in June and August. In June, he went, I think, t- a 12-game stretch without homering, and in August, he had a 9- or 10-game stretch before he had three in a double header. These droughts made it harder to judge the pace that he was on, it seems, because it looked like he was really slowing down, and then and then he would pick up again. In fact, you say that he had a record number 
of games where he hit two home runs. So he had a lot of games with zero and a notable number with two. Yeah, and and again, the, the part of that plays to the streakiness of, of the power hitter. Uh, he did face some some obstacles along the way, but he stayed with he his main focus was driving in runs, no matter how he did it. Uh, whether they came off a home run, whether it came off a, a single or a sacrifice fly, he thought that was his job. Not necessarily to hit home runs, but just to drive runs across the plate. So uh, he he faced his challenges well. Uh, he didn't complain much, but uh, they started keeping track fairly early because this was a big deal. The only one besides Ruth to uh, approach 60 was Jimmy Fox uh, a few years before Greenberg uh, made his his run, and it, it was something in, in those days, and they, there were game-by-game uh, kind of game comparisons between what uh, Ruth had done in 1927 and what Greenberg was doing now. My favorite moment in your book is the July 30 doubleheader, and unless I'm mistaken, I believe the award you mentioned that uh, Henry Ford received from uh, the German consuls, and I think it was in Ohio, very controversial, uh, but basically because he was friendly with the Nazi regime, they gave him this award. Uh-huh. And I believe it was on the same day that this remarkable doubleheader happens where Greenberg has two home runs and a teammate of his pitcher, Henry Eisenstadt, gets two wins. Uh, tell us about the significance of that moment. Well, uh, Eisenstadt uh, was uh, a fellow Jew uh, who was in his first season with the Tigers. And uh, naturally, Greenberg took him under his wing. and He mentored him in what it was like to be a big league ball player. And one of the things he told him was never bring up your religion because it, it's never use it as an excuse uh, because it's only going to come to hurt you. One of the other pieces of advice he gave him was don't play cards with, with uh, the teammates because if you lose, that uh, everything's fine. But as soon as you start winning, then then they're going to start, you know, muttering things about your religion under under your breath. But uh, Eisenstadt came in both games of a doubleheader, and Greenberg hit home runs to provide uh, his, his Jewish teammate with the win. So after the game, there was a big picture of the, taken of the two of them, and uh, Cochran told uh, the rest of the Tigers to be careful on the streets because the Jews in this town are going to go nuts. Other favorite moments you have from the season, key games, certain anecdotes that stand out from this year? Yeah, to be to be very honest, it's been a while since I actually looked at the book. Uh, I, I just marvel at the fact that the, the way the sports writers wrote about uh, the games in general. Remember, this was a time before television, before film, uh, really. People didn't get to see the games unless they went to the games. So it was the sports writers' jobs to present them in as purple pro, much purple prose as, as possible. And uh, and I, I just love reading the, the language of the day, even if it was a little, uh, not off-color, they didn't write off-color, but if it was politically incorrect, at the time, there there was one article I remember where a sport columnist for the Detroit uh, Free Press wrote in a dialect between two people, not necessarily Jewish, but two people who are obviously of Eastern European descent. Uh, and and the, the the way they describe the words, it, it is quite, quite insulting. But uh, he got his point across that how big a thing this was to those people, uh, certainly to the Jewish population, because... Here, were, here was a man who showed what Jews could do. Parents were showing 
their children. You know, you can achieve uh, a lot of things if you put your mind to it, as, as they did for Sandy Koufax a generation later. So it was a combination of the sports writing, doing the research was very interesting, seeing how uh, news of what was going on in Europe moved in the beginning of the year from a paragraph or two, let's say on page 17, to gradual headlines that ran across the front page as, as things became more dire. And uh, that, that was one of the enjoyable things about creating the book. Babe Ruth obviously looms as a character in your book, uh, obviously as the record holder, but also the, you mentioned that the Tigers made a apparently serious push to hire him as their manager back in 1934. And frankly, I don't know if I would have bet on him to have a lot of career longevity um, <laughs> and stay around till 1938, but it's possible that Ruth could have been Greenberg's manager during this season when Greenberg was making this charge. In any case, Ruth was regularly consulted to, to get commentary on how Greenberg was doing, whether or not he was going to make it. So on top of all the other pressure, uh, Greenberg had uh, Ruth regularly weighing in. Well, it's interesting you use the word pressure because what a lot of people don't think about is when Ruth hit 60 home runs, no one had ever approached that number before. So anything he hit above what the pre, well, he held the previous record, but uh, whatever he hit was just gravy. It, it was, he was having the time of his life. It was afterwards the people who approached him like Fox, like Greenberg, like Maris in 1961, that they were the ones who felt pressure because they were the ones being compared to Ruth. And in many cases, especially in Maris's case, not favorably. Sports writers in, in Greenberg's time pointed out, uh, which, which I found a bit funny, that in uh, 1927, Babe Ruth missed three games out of the 154-game season, whereas Greenberg played not only in 154 games, but one game ended at a tie, so there was an additional game. So he played in 155 games, so just as they said that Maris had all those extra chances to break the record in 1961, Greenberg benefited a bit from the extra games he played in that Ruth had missed, which I, I think is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I was really struck by that. You think, okay, Greenberg's playing the same length of a season with the exceptions that you mentioned. Uh, you can't put an asterisk on this, but it's not hard to imagine that people would have tried to had he broken the record. Well, it's also a question of the newspaper reporters loved Ruth. America loved Ruth. Uh, and here comes along uh, the, this this guy, a Jew no less, uh, which, which is part of the whole story, of course, uh, who is trying to break the record. And, and this guy was an upstart. He wasn't fit to carry Ruth's glove. And uh, they, they just didn't like it. So a lot of the reporters who made their bread and butter off writing about Ruth uh, took up the, the cudgel against Greenberg. But Greenberg, uh, as I mentioned before, because of the rainouts that had taken place in the early part, being made up as doubleheaders in the later part of the season, this is an era before there were lights in ballparks. So at late September, early October, when you're playing the second game of a doubleheader, those games are often shortened, called due to darkness, as the saying goes. So one of the things I did with the help of uh, Matt Rothenberg at the Baseball Hall of Fame was try to figure out from games that I could not find the, the box scores on RetroSheet or BaseballReference.com, just to try to figure out how many at-bats Greenberg missed because of those games that were shortened either by rain and called or uh, by darkness. And that's an important finding. What difference did you determine that those missed at-bats made? 
Well, I mean, no one knows what he would have done in those in those uh, extra at bats. There were probably around twenty at bats all told that that he missed because of either weather or darkness. Uh, on the other hand, you you kind of have to factor in whatever extra inning games he played, and that maybe balances out a little bit. You know, you don't know how many balls just went foul because they didn't keep track of those things uh, then. I'm sure they keep track. They keep track of everything now. I'm sure they keep track of of that within within a window of three feet or so. And was he playing uh, in uh, hitter friendly ballparks? You you mentioned the the commentary by Ruth before. Early on in the season, he was uh, giving Greenberg great credit, saying, "Oh yeah, he's got a great chance of doing it." But but as things became more serious. I think Ruth was was not as happy about how things are going. He said, "Well, just wait till September comes, and he's tired, and it's getting dark, and he's facing you know, young rookie pitchers just brought up." So he he was cognizant of his place in history, and he also didn't uh, relish the chance of losing it to someone else. So among the obstacles that Greenberg faced down the home stretch in September. Um, may have been the fact that pitchers uh, were not giving him anything to hit. And there's a lot of controversy about whether or not that was racially motivated or whether that was uh, an expression of of racism or ethnic hatred. Um, and you talk about the different sides of this story. I got to tell you, I was persuaded by a post that I saw at the Hardball Times. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. George Sabo, who looked at all the walks, and he contends that the only team and the only pitchers that gave Greenberg a higher walk rate that month were the St. Louis Browns, and they were pitchers who simply lacked control, were at the top of the league in walks. So they were just wild. They weren't anti-Semitic in his view. I read it and I found it pretty persuasive, but let me ask you, how do you see it, whether it's numerically or as a historian, or do you have a gut feeling? Were pitchers pitching around Greenberg, not giving him something to hit, perhaps in part because of anti-Semitism? Well, all due respect to, to the writers who fall on, on that side of the coin, uh, and I'm not a sabermetric guy. You know, math is not my forte, but I, I did do uh, an appendix in the book where it goes uh, kind of along the lines of that hardball timepiece where I took every game in which he, uh, he walked and I, I looked at the pitcher's records over the course of the season to see if there's anything abnormal about how many times they were walking both the rest of the Tigers and Greenberg himself. And and to make a long story short, I didn't find that the numbers were way off. Uh, you also have to remember, as, as Ruth was saying, you're, you're bringing up young pitchers who are maybe a little bit nervous and, and wild, and you have veterans who may be a little bit tired. Uh, I didn't even think about the umpires and you know what, what, what they were going through at the, the time as far as calling those pitches. But uh, again, long story short, I, I found that I, I did not find that racism uh, or anti-Semitism to be the cause of, of Greenberg's not achieving the record, which is something he very magnanimously said in his memoirs. He said he just got tired. And one of the la- in the last game of the season, the umpire, home plate umpire tells him, I'm sorry, Hank, this is as far as I can go in, in calling the game because of darkness. And Greenberg very, uh, again, magnanimously said that that's all right. This is as far as I can go, too. That's a memorable exchange, and the umpire was George Moriarty, who was a former Tiger, and uh, he's bending over backwards doing what he can to get Greenberg more at-bats. I don't know if that's a great moment in umpire impartiality, <laughs> but it's a, it's a memorable moment. Well, umpires are people, too, for whatever you say. Look at the recent spate of uh, 
ejections. You know, Ian Kinsler, uh, another Detroit Tiger, who actually wore Greenberg's number before coming to the Tigers, and obviously uh, Greenberg's number was retired, but uh, Kinsler is a student of the game and totally knew and understood that. Uh, he just turned around, looked at the umpire, and the umpire threw him out. And uh, Kevin Pillar for the uh, Toronto Blue Jays grounded out, and he was uh, walking uh, back to the dugout. He was ejected by the umpire. So, you know, th- these guys have kind of short fuses from time to time. I don't want to generalize, but uh, they're people too. And, you know, they, they root for players even though they'll never admit it. And they're players they don't like, although they, they won't admit it. You mentioned Ian Kinsler's tribute to Hank Greenberg and awareness of the pioneer that Greenberg was as a Jewish player. I sometimes wonder if, in general, Greenberg gets his historical due by baseball fans in general. And you write about rumors that Greenberg might be traded or sent to the Yankees. The Yankees scouted him early on. Greenberg said, I'm not going to play for a team that has Lou Gehrig installed at first base. But I've wondered, and this may be me as a Midwesterner, so call me on that, but had Greenberg been a part of that Yankees pantheon, Ruth, Gehrig, Greenberg, DiMaggio, Mantle, I wonder if he would have had a bigger place in baseball history that I think is is well-deserved. It's, it's interesting to think about, just by the fact that you're playing in New York, you're playing in a bigger market with more newspapers and, and a lot more press coverage. I would agree with that uh, that suggestion. On the other hand, he still went to war. He still lost three full seasons and parts of two others uh, to serving his country in active duty, not, not just the kind of... Uh, ball player uh, military duty where they would go around and play ball for the troops as the forms of entertainment, which was still valid. You know, they still lost time from their careers as well, but they weren't in the kind of mortal peril that, that Green, people like Greenberg and Bob Feller and Yogi Berra and many, many more were in. But yeah, playing in New York, there's absolutely no doubt that, that a hometown boy playing in New York like that, just as Lou Gehrig was a hometown boy, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'd be talking about him a lot more. You mentioned his military service and the fact that he, I think you quote a projection saying he could have had 502 career home runs joining that exclusive 500 homer club without military service. I guess I was struck in reading your book that in a way it's fitting that Greenberg so symbolically swatted against Hitler. He said, I was hitting against Hitler. Um, But not only that, he also actually joined the service and despite not seeing combat, was uh, was part of the resistance to Hitler. Well, I have to correct her on that. He did see combat. He did fly missions in the uh, Chinese Burma theater. Uh, but he was, and he was also, I believe, the first major leaguer to enlist. And this was before the war. He enlisted early in the season, uh, served six months in the military, and was uh, released. Uh, he had fulfilled his obligation. But as he was driving home from... Uh, from being released, uh, that's when the Japanese dropped the bomb on Pearl Harbor, and he immediately re-enlisted and, and was in for the, until the middle of 1945. One of the remarkable things about Greenberg's military service from a baseball standpoint is, and you write about this in the epilogue of what happened after 38 in his career, he returns from military service, hits one or two home runs in his first game back. He wasn't sure he'd ever play again, let alone that he would have the speed to catch up to major league pitching after so many years away, he comes back with a bang uh, and ends up leading the Tigers to a World Series championship in 1945. It was a remarkable coda on a remarkable career. 
Well, as, as you say, yeah, when he went into the service, he, especially the second time, he fully expected never to play again. He didn't know if he'd come back alive. Uh, but thank goodness he did, and he came back, and it was, it's, it's Hollywood. You know, if they ever make a movie about this, which I really doubt they will, uh, as you say, he came back, hit a home run, I believe, later in the season, he hit a grand slam that uh, might be misremembering this or, or getting it uh, confused with uh, one of his other uh, legendary home runs that, that won the pennant for the yep. Tigers in 1945. Uh, he comes back, immediately goes to the ballpark, uh, takes batting practice till his hands bleed because this is in the era before people wore batting gloves. And uh, well, what he did, what the, the emotional and spiritual lift he gave his teammates is, is again, the stuff of Hollywood movies. So, Ron, let me ask you, I was reading your book recently as the events of Charlottesville unfolded, and uh, it just made those disturbing events all the more eerie uh, to see people marching with swastika flags, shouting, Jews will not replace us. And when I started your book, I didn't expect for this sort of resonance, this sort of connection or these echoes of history. Uh, I'm curious, when you started writing your book, could you have imagined that we'd be seeing anything like this and have any reason to uh, to revisit these events that seemed so long ago, back in the 1930s, the way we now do? Well, well, your, your term of phrase, echoes of history, is, is perfectly apt. Uh, I handed in the manuscript for the book prior to the presidential elections, uh, and now, as we all know, these things have, have come back to haunt us again. You have a president who ran on the uh, philosophy of America first, and that was the philosophy of, of Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh and, and a lot of Americans at the time, America first. You had the American Bund, which was a, a pro-Nazi uh, organization in the 1930s, having demonstrations in, in, in major cities around the country, and you have Charlottesville. You have the plight of refugees. In 1938, it was Jews. Now it's Syrians uh, and other people from, from the Middle East who are, who are trying to escape uh, phenomenally bad situations. So it's just frightening that that history is seeming to repeat itself. So can we look to this era for lessons, at least cautionary tales? I know we don't want to make too direct connections um, or predictions, um, but if it's not too cliche to question, what are the lessons? Yeah, to, to be very honest, and, and like I said, this book was written before the elections, and, and I had no political, uh, contemporary political uh, thoughts at the time, But uh, and I, I don't want to make this a whole political thing, but it, it, it's frightening, and, I, and you have a real wild card in the White House right now, and I, there's just no predicting what will happen, what he'll do. You, you have to hope that there are enough people with decency and common sense who won't let anything like what happened in 1938, 1940s happen again. But, you, but uh, I'm, I'm not overly optimistic, I'm sorry to say. Well, on a much, much lighter note, I want to ask you <laughs> while I have you about one of your previous books, 501 Baseball Books Fans Must Read Before They Die. And what a discouraging book this was for me, uh, as impressive a work as it is, um, because I thought my reading list was pretty long to begin with, but now it's uh, now it's much longer. Uh, <laughs> can you give me two or three books that the majority of baseball fans have not read 
that they need to drop everything uh, and read at least after they've finished your book on Hank Greenberg? Well, one that immediately comes to mind is called The Tao of Baseball, T-A-O of Baseball. And uh, it was written in the 19, uh, early 1990s. And it was a time when I was very interested in the I Ching, uh, the yin, the yang of, of life. And so I, I just, it, it hit me at the right time. And it's about every thing has an opposite. So for the batter, you have a pitcher. For a ball, you have a strike. For a hit, you have an out. And the whole book is full of, of, of these uh, aphorisms. And it, it, I found it just, just fascinating. Uh, another book that I really enjoyed was, uh, and unfortunately the title escapes me, but it was uh, a book about ballpark food. Uh, there was a book written, again, at the same time, maybe the late 80s, early 90s, Dodger Dogs, the Fenway Franks. But there was one written more recently, and it's like a, an assessment of the progress of culinary at the ballpark. You know, for, for at the beginning, you just had hot dogs and, and peanuts and Cracker Jets. And now you go, you can buy sushi, you can buy uh, all, sort, all manner of, of food, and, and uh, it, it's fascinating. But that, that, I think, is also part of the business of baseball now, is that uh, you have to provide things that will bring non-fans to the ballpark to come with the fans. So while the fans are sitting in the seats watching the games, the non-fans can be going buying food, going to gift shops, etc. cetera. Uh, another book, which, which is not in 501, but uh, I'm working on a revision of it. it. That book was published five years ago, so I'm doing a little bit of an update. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm sorry to say uh, the, the title escapes me. It was written by Michael Leahy. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, writer. It was, I think it's The, the Lost Innocence. It's about uh, the, Brook, the Los Angeles Dodgers in the Vietnam War era. He focuses on a handful uh, of Dodgers at the time. And I, some are household names like Sandy Koufax and Maury Wills, but others are not. And uh, what these young men went through, the problems they went through personally and professionally, and also, again, in the face of, of war. And I, I thought he did a marvelous job, and uh, it won the, uh, the Spitball Magazine's Casey Award, his best book of, of 2016. So that, that's something that, again, is not just about baseball. It's about... Uh, baseball and life in a, a broader sense in, in the United States and, and that was one of the best books I've read period, not just about baseball but it includes baseball so that, that that's going to be in the next uh, version Well Ron Kaplan, this is an amazing story in sports history in cultural history, in American history I'm so glad you bring good attention to it uh, with next year being the 80th anniversary of this 1938 season, I hope many more will familiarize themselves with the story of Hank Greenberg and this remarkable 58 home run season in 1938. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your book. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Nathan. Ron Kaplan is author of Hank Greenberg in 1938, Hatred and Home Runs in the Shadow of War. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierman. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History and join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast. Mm-hmm.